0: Welcome to all of you, and I, I said, when I walked in and saw what was going on, I said, this is, uh, some of you know that we're trying to uh, negotiate potentially having a room upstairs here, this room, for our services, and uh, I, I made the uh, bad pun that this was a dry run today on that. <clears throat> um, didn't quite work like I thought it would. Well, we're glad that you're here and we look forward to what God's going to teach us. We're going to be looking at a passage in Luke 9 today. And for those of you who are online, you're going to get the PowerPoint, you get get all the scripture, get all the main points and everything else. The rest of you who are here live, you don't get any of that uh, today. We're not set up to do that. So you're just going to have to listen to the word of God as I uh, read it to you. Luke 9 is a rather fascinating uh, chapter in Luke's gospel. If you look at Luke's uh, approach, if, if you would look at it like you were writing a term paper and you did all this research, I feel like I'm going to have to keep going back and forth for some of you, some of you here to miss the post. Uh, when, you, when you gather together all sorts of research and you have a theme that's going, and then you've got all this stuff left over, and you're like, what do I do with this? And Luke's, Luke 9 has that kind of feel to it if, on, on the surface at least it's 62 verses in Luke chapter nine, and it starts out with uh, the twelve being sent out. It, it moves on to Jesus feeding the five thousand. There's Luke's account of Peter's declaration uh, when Jesus says, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter says, "You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God." Uh, there's also the transfiguration in Luke, uh, where where Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with Peter and The disciples in Jesus, there's a couple of healings that take place. And in more than one place, Jesus talks about the cost of following him. So it's just kind of potpourri of different uh, stories that feel like they're just kind of left over. And in the midst of all this, in verses 46 to 56, are perhaps The strangest eleven verses, where you're you're like, where does this exactly fit in? And I hope to show you this morning where that fits in, because Luke nine, in a lot of ways, is essentially what I would call a discipleship course for the apostles and disciples who are following uh, Jesus. Jesus is telling them, he's telling us how we need to do ministry, how we need to fulfill the vision for the kingdom of God. Uh, That's needed because the disciples. Uh, came in this point where they they were really rather confused. After being with Jesus for quite a while, they began to do something that I guess you would say is a natural thing for them to do, but it wasn't what Jesus wanted them to do. And that's this. They started drawing circles. And what I mean by that is they drew circles that would say, we're in the circle, and if you're not in the circle, you're outside the circle. And so it began to elicit a whole bunch of language from the disciples about us and them, about the in crowd and those who were, those who were outside. And now this was not what Jesus wanted them to learn, It wasn't the trajectory of what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples. In fact, he was about breaking down those barriers and enlarging circles and shattering stereotypes and reaching to all, all different kinds of people. But the disciples needed to know in these 11 verses... Uh, in the midst of all this other stuff that was going on about how to minister in the kingdom and, and great theological statements, there were some key points that he wanted to make about how we go about drawing those circles and what do those circles signify and what do those circles really mean. And here's the big picture this morning. Let me just give it to you that God wants us not to be exclusive, but inclusive. He doesn't want us to tighten and refine and limit our circles, but he wants us to broaden them for the sake of the kingdom. And he gives us three instances of this in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 56. So listen first to verses 46 through 48. If you brought your Bibles this morning, you can follow along. It says there, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him, And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. The one who's least among you who is the greatest. And here's the first principle that I see here about drawing circles is simply this, that we are to embrace those who seem insignificant. We are to embrace those who seem insignificant. We're to identify with and humbly serve those that we would otherwise judge as lowly. Now, there's much we could say about children, and this isn't the only time that Jesus uses children to make a a a grown-up point to the adults Uh, there's a couple of other times where Jesus called children up or children, the disciples are trying to keep the children from being a distraction to what Jesus was trying to do. And Jesus would always stop them and he would always say, you you don't understand. Uh, the, The kingdom belongs to these children and we need to be childlike in order to enter into the kingdom. He says at one point, and here he says, whoever welcomes these welcomes me and for it is the least among you, who is the greatest. I think there's, again, a lot of things that we could say about children and how they model certain things for us, which are important when we think about our walk with God. They have this sense of wonder. Uh, Children are usually far more teachable. They are willing to admit their weaknesses, the ability uh, to trust, desire for love. All those things are are things that we could pinpoint in children and say, these are Uh, attributes that God wants us to have when he calls us to be his children. But the real challenge is this, in this particular passage. It's challenging the disciples' sense of importance. They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And so what Jesus does is he brings a little child up. And he says, whoever is least in the kingdom among you is the greatest, I think it's interesting that when Jesus brings children up, and kids, I want you to listen to this. When when Jesus brings the children up to him, he never says, be kind to these kids, be patient with these kids, for such will be the kingdom of God. He never says that they will be the kingdom of God. It's interesting that a lot of times uh, people in leadership in churches will be asked, why do you do youth ministry? Why do you do children's ministry? And often an answer that you hear to that question is, well, the kids are the future of the church. That's the will be kind of answer. And that's never the perspective that Jesus has. Whenever he brings a child up, he says, for such is the kingdom of heaven. They're in it. And children, don't ever let anyone just uh, like push you off to the future and say, we're teaching you so that someday you can take the baton and and lead in the church. No, you're in the church. You're here because we have something to learn from you and you have something to learn from us. And we're all part of of that circle that God wants us uh, to operate within. When we talk about those who seem insignificant, Jesus uses the example of a child, but today we could throw a lot of other kinds of examples in there too, couldn't we? Those that we run into on in our daily lives, those that we run into as we walk into, into church on Sunday morning, uh, those who are experiencing perhaps homelessness or those who are refugees, those um, who have encountered some kind of disability or challenge in their in their life. And what Jesus would say about those sorts of people and every other kind of person is that they are there for, for us to learn from and for us to love, and they will give us far more than what we will, we will give to them. That's what Jesus is always saying. I think that's just so true with people who have reached out in that sort of way to people who have been, who've been challenged or marginalized or whatever category we might put someone in. As we reach out with the love of Christ, we always receive so much more. Uh, than what we, than what we feel like we're giving. Jesus says, embrace those who seem insignificant if you're going to really do ministry in the kingdom of God. Well, the second group, he, the second circle that he's talking about, he shows us in verses 49 and 50, where John tells, says this. He says, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And he said, we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Okay, we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. And Jesus says, don't stop him. For whoever is not against you is for you. And so here's the second point. The first point is embrace those who seem insignificant. The second point Jesus is saying is redefine your allies. Redefine your allies. Uh, The first thing is, is focused on age. This is kind of focused on religion mindset, if you would. And and the principle here, the, the the context or backdrop of this is just a few verses before in verses 37 to 41, there's a healing that Jesus does of a young man, a boy that uh has a demon, and Jesus casts it out, and it says the the father is saying, You know, your disciples tried, but they couldn't do it. So here's the context. They couldn't do They couldn't cast out the demon. But John is saying, Master, we saw someone doing it in your name, and we wanted to stop him because he's not one of us. And so it's kind of a scorched earth approach here. If we can't do it, you can't do it either. That's kind of the approach that John wants to uh, enact in in terms of this uh, particular issue. Uh, Ultimate party spirit. If we can't, nobody can. And Jesus says, don't stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. And what Jesus is basically saying here is that my purposes can be served even by those who really don't understand me, even by those who might be uh, looking at life and the world differently uh, than what you do. Jesus says, I can work through that. I'm not bound by just those who are within this tight little circle of disciples. If they're not against me, then he says, they are for you. Paul had that kind of attitude. At one point in the book of Philippians, he talks about being in jail, and he talks about how there were others uh, outside who who were sharing the gospel, but they were doing it in such a way, we're not quite sure exactly what he meant by this, but he says they're doing it in a way that would bring harm to Paul. So maybe they were trying to uh, point the finger at Paul in a way that would get him in trouble with the authorities, and Paul just says, "Hey, I don't, I don't care why, what the motivation is here for these people who are preaching the gospel. But if the gospel's preached, if Jesus's name is lifted up, then I'm good with that, and I, I'll rejoice with that." Paul says. So it's that kind of approach that Jesus is trying to, uh, trying to convince the disciples to have here, particularly John. I think in our society today. Um, there are a lot of people who realize and understand this. Politicians realize and understand this principle very well. And I'm not I'm not talking about politicians in the negative sort of sense. We can all rail. Politicians are easy targets to rail against, aren't they? Um, but I'm talking about like good politicians, people that really have the good of their city or their community or their state or their country in mind. And they realize that in order to make progress, I might not be able to get everything I want, but in order to make progress, I have to work with people that might disagree with me on, on certain points. But I'm going to do that for the greater good. And you see, that's what Jesus is saying here to his, his disciples. Man, if, if there's demons being cast out, don't stop them. That's a good thing. That's a sign of the kingdom of God coming, the power over the darkness. Don't stop him for whoever's not against you is for you. So be willing to open up your alliances, to redefine um, your allies. And you know, friends, that's something that we have tried hard at Harbor way back from, from the beginning. We talk about having strategic partnerships, and that was embedded in, in how we began Harbor. We We started 20 years ago saying we don't want to start any ministry new that someone else is already doing. If we can find someone who's doing the ministry that that we're convicted about, that we're passionate about, that we want to be involved in, if we can find someone else who's doing it and doing it well, let's just join hands with them, join arms with them. Uh, redefine allies. They may not be, you know, our, our exact form of, of uh, religion. They may not be our exact form of uh, within Christianity, like our denomination or something like that. That's not the issue. The issue is, are they doing a work that brings honor to God, that that brings uh, healing to the community, that advances God's kingdom in that way? And Jesus says, if they're not against you, they're for you. Reach out to those people. Have those kind of of alliances. Be more willing to accept help and, and redefine alliances than to protect your turf and make a name for yourself. That's what Jesus is saying here. Redefine your allies. Well, the third thing that he says then comes out in verses 51 through 56, where John, John again is at the forefront of this when he says, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. And when when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire on heaven to destroy them? And Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Embrace those who seem insignificant. Redefine your allies. Here he's saying simply, guys, you gotta love your enemies. You have to love your enemies. That's the ultimate circle. that that Jesus is saying we have to draw. A circle that would include, in this case, uh, ethnic enemies, racial enemies for the people of Israel. The the Samaritans were uh, considered in their minds to be uh, half-breeds because they they emerged when the the nation of Israel was in exile and the intermarriage took place. And when the nation of Israel came back, they rejected the Samaritans. They actually had a different set of worship. we uh, place to worship. We find this in John chapter 4 with Jesus' encounter with a woman at the well. Um, there was a whole different uh, perspective on God and faith. Um, and, and Jesus underscores that rift when he's approached at one point and asked what the greatest commandments are. And he says, well, to love your Lord, your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what did the people say immediately? They said, well, Lord, let's define neighbor. You know, and what they're doing there is they're trying to say, let's, let's figure out how wide to draw this circle. It says, you know, define who a neighbor is. And so what did Jesus do? He told them the parable of the Good Samaritan, where this man was helpless by the road and, and a priest went by, the religious people went by, the pastors went by and didn't stop. They had, they had more important things to do. But finally, a good Samaritan came by and took care of this Jewish man. And Jesus says, who's who's the neighbor? Who's the neighbor here? You know, and what he's saying is when we look in our world, when we look on our neighborhoods and our communities, don't look for limits. Look for opportunities. Don't look to ways we can limit our circles and decrease them. Look for ways that those circles can be expanded. Now, that hatred went back for centuries. Um, it was something that was kind of inbred in the Jewish people and and even among the Samaritans. They just didn't get along with each other, and that's why they didn't welcome Jesus. I mean, Jesus is is set for Jerusalem, and uh, when when uh, the, the country of Samaria was kind of right between where Jesus did most of his ministry to the north around the Sea of Galilee and the city of Jerusalem. Uh, if you were to draw a straight line and, and take the most direct route, you'd go right through the middle of Samaria. But Jesus and the, uh, then the Jewish people of his time, Jesus didn't do this. But the Jewish people of his time, in order to avoid Samaria, they they do an end run around. It would be like if if we wanted uh, to go up to San Clemente, you take the five. But but what if Camp Pendleton was full of people you didn't like? Well, then you would go like back up into Orange County and catch the 91 and the 15 and you'd come back down to San Diego. And you go, why would you do that? Well, because you you just don't want to be walking through or traveling through where these people are that you don't like. It's a very similar kind of thing that was going on. The enmity and the the, uh, hatred was so strong. And Jesus says that's not how the kingdom of God is going to work. Our circles need to be expanded, even into those uh, ethnic and racial areas where where it's so ingrained in us that we are to protect our turf and hate our enemies. Jesus says, love our enemies. We're not going to call down fire on them. Uh, James and John were probably thinking of the case of Mount Carmel where Elijah, we talked about that. You know, last month where Elijah had that great encounter, and God called down fire upon the altar, and they're saying, well, let's just let's just call down some fire." They'd just gone through the Transfiguration, and Elijah was there, and they're they're thinking these great things, and Jesus says, no, that's not how it's going to work from here on out. Um, you need to love your enemies. That has obvious application to us as a church. Um, it has obvious application to us as individuals, though, as well. Our, our challenge and our problem, friends, simply is that we don't, we don't get it the way Jesus wants us to get it. We're still looking for limits. And the reason why is because the gospel hasn't gone down into our hearts the way that it needs to. You see, our hope is that the gospel can change anyone. The gospel can bring uh, people together, but can it change even us? as we look for those opportunities as we're confronted with those opportunities can it change even us i don't know how many how many of you have seen the play or read the the or, or seen the movie of les mis victor hugo's les mis how many of you then have read the book how many of you read it in the original french <laughs> there you go <clears throat> Les Mis is, a, is one of my favorite plays, and I'd watched it several times before I finally thought, yeah, it'd be good to read the book at some point. You know, you always watch the movie and then you then you stumble into the book usually, that's the way it goes. And I'd seen the play so many times, I thought it'd be good to read the book. This is like about 20 years ago when I was commuting down uh, from Carlsbad to downtown San Diego, working for this this new church called Harbor Presbyterian Church. I'd commute on the coaster. I had like a 50 minute ride each way. And I had this thick Victor Hugo book, Les Miserables, and it was 1,250 pages. And the thing that struck me as I started to read that book more than anything else was this. If you know the play and if you know the movie, you know that one of the very opening scenes is after after Jean Valjean is released from prison, he has an encounter with a bishop, and and Jean Valjean steals candlesticks from the bishop, and, and he's rounded up by the police. They bring him back, and the good bishop uh, says, hey, you forgot this stuff too, and he gives him even more silver. And, and, and the bishop says, I bought your soul for God. And it made a lasting impression on Jean Valjean. And in the play, that's like the second or third song in the play. And the bishop sings the song and he exits, he exits off the stage. And then the rest of the play goes on. There's like 25 more songs uh, that go on through the rest of the play. When you read the book, here's the fascinating thing. Out of 1,250 pages, the first 100 pages are about this bishop. It's about the good bishop, the first 100 pages. And as, I, and as I delved into that and began to read it, there was something in my heart that really was excited about the way that Victor Hugo described the good bishop. And I can't read it all, but there are uh, kind of a couple of quotes that I can put together that gives you a flavor for how he described the bishop. He said, he was always and in everything just, true, equitable, intelligent, humble, worthy, beneficent, and benevolent in all ways. He was a priest, a sage, and a man. We may even say that in those political opinions which we've been criticizing and which we are disposed to judge most, almost severely, he was tolerant and yielding, perhaps more than we who now speak. He had a strange and peculiar way of judging things. And Victor Hugo says, I suspect that he acquired it from the gospel. I suspect that he acquired it from the gospel. And my eyes just kind of popped out the first time I read that. Wow. It made me want to be a priest. (laughs) made me want to be a religious person. It made me proud of, of being, you know, called to that kind of life. It gave me one to aspire to, even as, as I read that. And that's what Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples. You need to be like the priest in Le Mis. But James and John, their nicknames at that time were the Sons of Thunder, the sons of thunder—they had very short fuses. If there was a book that would summarize James and John, it would be um, Jane Austen's *Pride and Prejudice*. You know, that would be the—that'd be the book that would sum up their lives. They were proud men. They were prejudiced men. But eventually, John became known as the apostle of love, because eventually the gospel changed his heart, and he got it, and James got it. There's a evangelist in the 19th century who uh, traveled across the the sea sharing his faith. And at one point, he he talked a lot about revival often. At one point, he was asked how revival starts. And he said this, talking about circles, he said this, if you want to see revival, he says, go into your closet in your house and kneel down and with chalk draw a circle around yourself and then begin to pray earnestly that God would start revival within that circle. God would start revival there, that God would change our hearts. You see, the gospel here, as we look at it in Luke 9, it, it jumps out at us in verse 51 when it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We know what that was about, right? This was a turning point in his life when he was setting his mind to do the one thing that he had been called by his father to do, and that was go to Jerusalem and there to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. There to be a sacrifice for you and for me. All the times that we've tightened our circles and and been the bad bad, uh, person in the story of the Good Samaritan, we haven't reached out for opportunities. We've reached out and wanted more than anything else, just limits. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm not only going to show you how to do that, but I'm going to die for all the times you didn't do it. Uh, that's what the gospel is, friends. Jesus headed toward Jerusalem, not just for a trip, not just for a pilgrimage, but to die so that he could enlarge his circle to include people like you and like me. And what he calls upon us to do in response to that as we embrace the gospel is out of gratitude and humility that we would respond by enlarging ours as well, to those who would seem insignificant, to those who might not at first seem to be our allies, but even to those, he says, you might consider to be your enemies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that Jesus gave this simple lesson in the midst of so many other things that were going on in this chapter that Jesus desired for us to learn what it meant to minister, to be a follower of you, to just be a Christian in his context. And Father, we know we live in such a divided culture right now that there are virtually limitless opportunities for us to put these things into place. But first, Father, help us to draw that circle around ourselves to pray for revival and changed heart within the circle so that as we reach out, we reach out not out of guilt, not out of some desire to make a name for ourselves, but we reach out simply with the truth and the reality of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.